0: Good morning. Just before we plunge in, uh, let me say that Wednesday night, if you were here, uh, we had our first Wednesday prayer time, and uh, what you know is that it's it's like a little taste of heaven in this room. And if you haven't come, I just wanted to highlight. I was sitting in the back praying on Wednesday night, and I was like, I just want to invite everyone because for those that are are not yet a part of that, I'm hungry for it for them. So I just want to tell you, it's a sweet time. 200 plus of your friends from this community filled the space on Wednesday night and we were calling out to God and we will do it again on October 6th. And uh, I'd love for you to be there. So circle that date. Plan for it. Be in this room October 6th, 7 p.m. to pray with us. We believe corporate, urgent, unified prayer unlocks even as it experiences the presence and the power of God. And so it's a gift. Come and join us. Let uh, Let me pray for us. That God would help us even as we open His Word and engage. Let's pray. Our Father, I pray that we would enter these moments together with expectation, anticipation, courage jesus the sermon on the mount is not for the faint of heart you speak clearly and you speak boldly and your word is sharp it divides even our bone from our marrow i pray for all the men and the women in this room right now that you would prepare their hearts and that in these coming moments that they would willingly and eagerly engage in this work submitting to your word inviting you jesus to transform Our hearts and our lives. I pray that where sexual sin has rooted down into our stories, where it is robbing us of joy, where people have come in feeling like they are in chains to their addiction or to their hidden sin, uh, I pray, God, that your word would come forward with power and you would set us free. I pray that where we have not honored our bodies and our sexuality in a way that treats treats it as a gift from you that is very precious and valuable that you would raise our sights and help us to to see these good gifts the way that you see them God would you come and do this by the power of your spirit you're welcomed in this room we pray it in Jesus name amen right around the time seven mile road turned one the city of Houston was visited by Harvey for those of you who are in town you remember it was kind of it was mayhem my garage became the epicenter of our community's care for the neighborhoods around it. So it's full of, of all kinds of tools and water bottles. And some of you were here at that time. We were going out into our neighborhoods and trying to help neighbors that were re- rebuilding their lives after everything had come undone. And there's one story in the midst of it all that's created sadness for me over the years. I go back to it with a little sinking feeling in my stomach from time to time because there was a couple that we helped that were both alcoholics. They had struggled for years with that. They were smokers, and they were, their life was kind of a mess. Their home was a mess. They had taken on two feet of water, and they were just trying to live it out. They were going to live it out in this space. And as I met with them and talked to them, I convinced them that this was not healthy for them and that they needed to take steps to getting this taken care of. I said, we'd glad, gladly help, and, so a bunch of eager volunteers myself included began to move them out after they agreed with it but we didn't realize that even though their life seemed to be in shambles and everything was a mess that a lot of their furniture was in fact really valuable antiques some of them like 150 years old solid wood but it was all such a mess we didn't realize that we were handling things of tremendous value and we actually did a lot of damage and so these very valuable pieces of furniture were defaced and scratched, some of them ruined. And I remember months later in processing with this couple, feeling the weight of, like, ah, such good intentions, but the confusion and the, the just not realizing that we were handling really valuable goods. We had done harm. And that, that made me so sad as we tried to love and care for that family, and I've realized that there's, there's a distinction that takes place. When you know you're handling something valuable, it's very different than when you don't, right? Like, it's a totally different ballgame. A very easy, for instance, is, is the Mona Lisa. I've got a little picture of how the Mona Lisa is kept. This is It's kind of hard to see the glare, but there's a, there's a little frame around the Mona Lisa that was built about four or five years ago to continue to preserve what is... Arguably the the most well-known and most valuable piece of artwork on the planet and in fact that little case that you see is highly uh, Technologically advanced it, it monitors the humidity the temperature the amount of light that comes in it's bulletproof and it, en- it is sealed and ensures that this painting is preserved Once a year, they actually break the seal and they get in to make sure that all the tools that are monitoring what's happening in that space are still functioning properly so the humidity and temperature and everything is still right. And then they seal it back and they don't unseal it for another year. One day a year it's unsealed. Otherwise, it is perfectly preserved in that space. Those two images for me have been helpful as I've been sitting with Jesus' words this week. I think they're helpful for us because, in essence, what he is going to say in the Sermon on the Mount, in this portion, as he deals with human sexuality, as he deals with your body and mine, and the way that we think about our sexuality, and the way that we engage with others, he is going to say that, in fact, sex is a, a really valuable gift from God to people. It's precious and valuable. And it is to be handled with care. But the struggle is, as we're studying the Sermon on the Mount, what we have called it is, I see things upside down. Meaning that culturally, so much of what Jesus is going to say to us is, is actually inverted from what we experience culturally. We live in a day and a time, and in fact, it has been the case throughout human history that we, we invert God's view of sexuality. Something that is precious and valuable and is intended to be handled with care is, t- is treated like a... An animal appetite. It is handled and mishandled and defaced when we treat it like making a turkey sandwich. I'm, I'm hungry and so I satisfy my hunger. I desire this thing so I'm gonna satisfy it in whatever way suits me best. That we as a people are embedded in a moment that is mishandling and defacing a really precious and valuable gift of God. There's lots of ways that I could build that case. I mean, simply stated, just looking at the numbers around pornography should be sufficient to convince us that we, we live in an upside down moment. The pornography industry, it's hard to actually get your arms around how much revenue it generates annually. Somewhere the experts say between nine and $90 billion a year on this industry. Whatever the number is and all of that, it's, it's pretty safe to say it's bigger than all of the revenue generated by Hollywood each year, that it is pervasive, it is devastating. Uh, and if not full-blown pornography, it's just going home and watching the football game and paying attention to the commercials in between, you're going to be sold... Dish soap and told that you'll have better and more sex if you buy this kind of dish soap, this kind of body spray, drink this beer rather than that beer. That we are so awash in this mindset that treats sexuality like something to be handled and passed around. And as a result, it is, it's been defaced, it's been scuffed, it's been mistreated, debased. And so, into that space, Jesus' words, like a like a splash of cold water, awaken us and call us to something different. He, once again, in this passage, is going to be flying in a way that is inverted from the way that we are invited to see the world. And what he is going to say is this, sex has tremendous value. It is incredibly valuable, and for that reason, it must be handled with care. Let's talk about what that looks like by looking back in Matthew 5, starting in verse 27. How do we handle this precious gift with care? The first thing we're going to see in verses 27 through 30 is that we vigorously remove the temptation towards lust. We vigorously remove the, the path that even leads to that sort of devastation. He's going to say with, with vigor, we must remove it. Look back at verse 27 through 30. He says this, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. As mentioned in previous weeks, Jesus is teaching through the commandments of the Old Testament and helping kingdom people understand how to fill those commandments up with all of God's intended meaning. So this is a commandment of God, do not commit adultery. And now he's going to say, but this is more than just what you're doing with your bodies. Let's let's fill this up with all of the intended meaning because this has to do with your mind and your heart and the way that you view the world. He says, but I say to you, Once again, we've talked about that phrase, the weight of authority in Jesus' words. He's not like the prophets of the Old Testament that says, thus saith the Lord. He doesn't say that. He says, I say to you. Jesus takes up the authority, and this is what he says. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. You see, as Jesus raises the stakes for kingdom people on how to honor God's view of sexuality, he is painting this picture that even the lustful intent needs to be cut off. Which raises the question, we we need to do a little bit of defining work here. We need some definitions, because Jesus is saying it's not just enough to honor the letter of the law, you actually have to steer clear of lust itself. Well, what is looking at a woman with lustful intent, as the text says? What is that? Well, in the actual language, in in the Greek, what Jesus is saying, when he says to look, it actually means to stare, to linger, to leer. It's not the first look but it's the second and the third. It's the staying in a moment and beginning to treat another person as an object for your purposes and your desires. So it's that lingering second and third look and when it says for lustful intent what that literally means is with an intention towards desire. So I look once. And now I'm looking two and three times and I'm staying in that moment because I'm turning this person into an object of my desire. This is what's being defined. This is what Jesus is warning his community about and saying if we're going to fully honor God's law, this we must be on guard against. Well, I think let's just be honest about these definitions and let's see if we can find ourselves before we deal with how is Jesus going to tell us to treat this with tenderness and care, where, where do you find yourself in this text? Men, let me just ask you pointedly, where in your life are you tempted to cross that line? The first look we don't have a choice about, and it's not sin necessarily. That idea of seeing someone that is beautiful, you notice a shape or a size of a, of a woman that walks by and you notice that, the notice is not necessarily sin. But the question for you men is this: where are you tempted to cross that line of beginning to objectify another for your own purposes and desires? Is it alone with your computer? Do you have unfettered access to the internet and nobody knows what you're looking at and it is corroding your soul? Is that true for you? Is it with your television at night, scrolling through Netflix and what you're allowing yourself to watch? talking yourself into it, saying, oh, it's not that big of a deal, but then later it really has its hooks in you, what you're seeing and the way that you're running back to it in your mind? Is it scrolling through social media and Instagram where all of a sudden what started off just an opportunity to catch up with old friends or see what everybody's up to, now you're scrolling through people you've never met, you're looking for things and you're finding yourself in rabbit holes going, why am I here? The question is, Where are you crossing this line? Where do you stay and stare and objectify? And women, I understand that sexual sin functions differently oftentimes for us by gender. Not always and not exactly. Oftentimes sexual sin can be less visually driven for women, though the statistics say that pornography usage for females has skyrocketed in the last 10 years. What I'm inviting you to do is to search your own heart. I can't do that, but the Holy Spirit can if you will invite him. And my question is, where are you crossing the line as Jesus is inviting you towards purity and towards wholeness? Are there places and times where you stay and you linger and you consider another based off of what's happening visually? Or perhaps is it not so much that you go that direction, but you do love the looks and you know how to present yourself in such a way that causes men to take notice, highlighting certain parts of you or ways that you present yourself. The the scriptures would invite you into modesty and wholeness as we as a community of brothers and sisters in Christ fly differently than the world does as it relates to our sexuality. So my question, before we get to Jesus' answer, is where do we find ourselves in this? Well, as Jesus paints this picture boldly and clearly, he then, did you hear it, uses such really violent language, honestly. Once he identifies it, he says, cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. As Dale Bruner said, he said, better to limp into heaven than to leap into hell. The idea being that Jesus is urgent. Did you hear how freely and consistently he, re- he, he actually mentions hell in this text and in others throughout our teaching? Jesus believes in hell. And he believes that you can feel the heat of it, particularly around twisted sexuality. Did you hear it when he said it in verse 29, he says, it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. In verse 30, it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. What he is saying is this, that the devastation and the destruction that is future judgment on those outside of God is tasted and ushered into this world when we allow the inverted view of sexuality to shape us. When we give ourselves to these things, we can feel the heat of hell itself nipping at our heels. He is not teaching something that is new and different from the Old Testament. We know this to be true. Proverbs 6 and 7 could be a good place to start. The Old Testament wisdom literature said that sexual sin, it's so enticing on the front end. It's like a, a rush of dopamine, and it blinds you to the destruction that it's smuggling in. All of a sudden we go, oh, this is so exciting, so enticing. And in that moment, Proverbs actually tells us you're like a lamb being led to slaughter. Smile on the face, excitement about what this could spell for my pleasure or my fulfillment, but what it's actually spelling is your destruction. Jesus says you're ushering hell in. The Sermon on the Mount is not for the faint of heart, because Jesus loves us so much. He knows. What will destroy you? And because he loves you so much, he doesn't like hem and haw around it. He doesn't go, well, you might want to consider that you should really be careful over here. He loves us enough to go, watch out! This thing will get its hooks in you and it will not be satisfied until it has laid you waste. This is what he is saying about our sexuality. And so, where do you need to cut it off? Where does it need to happen for you? Listen. If you right now are dealing with the shame and the guilt of hidden addiction to pornography. I've got great news for you. Today is the day of freedom. You don't have to live there anymore. All the lies that overpromise and have underdelivered You don't have to continue to believe those lies. We together, as the family of God, can step into the light and experience the freedom that Jesus has purchased for us. That doesn't have to be you anymore. You can be honest with yourself and honest with those around you and step into the light. If you and your boyfriend or your girlfriend are currently sleeping together, taking your clothes off with people that are not your spouse, the rush of dopamine and the excitement. It is making promises to you that it will not deliver. It will rob you of your freedom and your joy and your fullness. Jesus has, has spoken authoritatively on behalf of the Father about what is intended for your sexuality. Would you repent and step into the light, find healing together with this community? You can feel it, right? Like we're flying upside down that when Jesus speaks, it runs so counter to what you're hearing culturally. But Jesus is saying, I have the authority of heaven and earth and I'm speaking a better word for you. You can be free. You don't have to buy these lies anymore. And husbands and wives in the room, if you're dipping your toes in the the deceptive waters of adulterous thought, you're talking with an ex on facebook after your husband goes to sleep if you're texting with a friend from work and it seems so you know not that big of a deal but you're starting to share more and more of your heart and you're realizing you're being led astray listen stop now jesus is saying you're inviting the fires of hell into your home do you hear it He's saying it's so valuable. It's a precious gift. Handle with care. And the first way that we handle with care is by vigorously, urgently cutting it off, removing the possibility of lust. I remember in my own journey, my my wife and I had just moved into a new apartment. This was early in our marriage. And I remember that we realized that what came with our apartment, we had every channel on our television. We moved in that night and we were flipping through and I was noticing what all was going to be on this television. And I remember how embarrassing and humiliating it was to look at my bride who I loved. I had just graduated from seminary. I was professionally holy, right? (laughs) Like that's what I do. And I had to look at Ashley and say, hey, I need you to put the parental lock on my TV because I'm nervous for what I would do when you weren't around. It's like so embarrassing. But the truth is what God has begun to unlock in our journey over the last 10 plus years is that it's actually in weakness that his strength can finally flood in. If you're playing some game right now, pretending like you have it all together and that temptation is not real, but secretly it's devastating you, would you step into the light? Vigorously cut it off. It's better to not know what's going on with your friends than have Instagram and have your whole body plunge into hell. Better. I'm not saying that everybody who has Instagram is in sin. I'm saying you need to know your heart and where your area of temptation is and you need to cut it off, whatever it is. This is what Jesus is saying. The second thing that he's going to say in our text, there's two ways, right? He's saying, listen, this is a precious and a valuable gift, handle with care. The first thing, vigorously resist temptation, cut it off. The second thing is honor God's original intent for marriage. Did you hear it in verse 31 and 32? Look back with me. This is the the second way that we as people can handle this valuable gift with care. Verse 31 says this, it was also said. Now that's a hint that Jesus is, is treating this next idea as part and parcel of the one he's already talking about. He's saying, while I'm on that train of thought, it's also been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, we just have a a handful of moments left. I'm going to make a few comments on this. With this recognition, I'm not giving a full enough treatment for what is a weighty topic in marriage and divorce. I want to give you some biblical parameters to understand it as we continue to lift our vision to meet Jesus' vision of sexuality and marriage. And my hope is that this will stir up conversation in your house church community as you continue to wrestle with it. So just want, I want to own that. I, I, this could, this could uh, merit quite a bit more time than we have. But a few comments. One... Jesus has a really high view of marriage. The the argument, the debate of the day is built off of Deuteronomy 24, one through through four. And it is a passage that actually teaches about divorce that people are wrestling with. And they're saying, can you have an any cause divorce? Can you get divorced for any reason? That was the debate among the religious leaders of the day. And each time Jesus gets confronted with this question, which is several times throughout the gospels, He answers by raising their view from beyond just the issue at hand to God's ideal for marriage. In Matthew 19, he's actually going to point to Adam and Eve and say, what God has joined together, let no man separate, meaning that in God's economy, marriage is designed as the, as it were, the the chamber, this kind of Like the Mona Lisa, right, this precious gift that is entrusted of human vulnerability and connection and oneness that is gifted by God, marriage and its covenant promises becomes the safe place within which we as human beings can promise ourselves to one another. When a man or a woman stands across from you on a wedding day and stands before friends, family, and God and promises, I'll be there again tomorrow. Now we have the safety in which we can truly be unclothed in every way. Meaning like that vulnerability of I trust you with all of me because you have promised and you've made a solemn covenant before God that you will live up to your end of the bargain, that this is a safe place to be naked and unashamed. This is God's design. And incidentally, this is why he hates divorce. God hates divorce because it does violence to his good design that creates safety and flourishing and health and wholeness for his children. This is God's good design. And so when Jesus is confronted with the question of divorce, he says, no, 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 listen, this is not the way it was supposed to be. You're actually supposed to be committed unto death, producing safety and flourishing, He says, except in the case of sexual immorality, there are two biblical grounds, as best we can tell, for divorce. Sexual immorality and abandonment, as mentioned in 1 Corinthians 7, but even in those instances, It doesn't mean that divorce is required or expected. In fact, we see pictures like in Hosea, or the way that God speaks about it in Ezekiel, the way he talks about his own heart with his people, that he still loves, even in instances where that happens, where a husband and a wife committed to the gospel seek reconciliation and healing. God's design for marriage is that the only thing that would separate it is death. One other note, just to make sure we've read this text clearly, and then we'll finish by applying it, is that he also mentions remarriage, that subsequent marriage is tantamount to adultery when it's not a biblical divorce, it says in this text. There's two ways to read this biblically, and I'm not going to fully defend one or the other. I just want to put them before us to wrestle with, because I think what it does is it helps us see the high view that God has for marriage. Some would say that the scriptures born out all read in context would say that in fact any remarriage while your first partner is still alive is tantamount to adultery. That until that partner passes away and God's economy has been joined together can't be separated. Some would read the text that way. Some also, both Bible-believing, wrestling, and I'm, uh, like I said, I just want to put it before us to wrestle with. Some would say where there is a biblical grounds for divorce, there is also biblical grounds for subsequent remarriage. Whichever it is, what I want us to feel is it's inverted, it's different than what we are taught, what, what the culture would invite us to believe. Jesus says, however high your view of marriage is, mine is higher still because it is a beautiful picture of what I have intended for relationship between man and woman and ultimately between God and his church. This is God's design for marriage. This is God's design for your sexuality. And so it brings us to to a final question. And I want us to be honest Here. Like, do you feel that the Sermon on the Mount, Mount, he he doesn't sidestep issues. This is not for the faint of heart. You might be feeling a little uncomfortable depending on who you're sitting next to. And listen, don't miss this point. Don't miss this opportunity. What do we do when confronted with this vision and we realize that our sexuality has already been grossly mishandled? It's scuffed and defaced we have sacrificed God's view for our own pleasure and simplicity, where we, where we feel the conviction of the Spirit and the weight of Jesus' words and the context of a broken world. What do we do? We've got good news, and I want us to just to look briefly at Ephesians 5 as we think about this, this view that As Jesus talks about marriage, ultimately what what he's referring to is his own relationship with the church. I just want you to hear what he is doing on behalf of the church, particularly in the places where where we feel that we have been defaced, mishandled. Ephesians 5, 25 and following, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then he begins to describe how Christ loves his bride, how he views marriage. And this is what he says, he gave himself up for her. It's reference to his death. He died for her. He he died to purchase you. His blood was shed to purchase your sinful and scuffed soul. And this is what it says, that, purpose statement, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. The reality is this, that the love of Jesus as our great heavenly groom coming for his bride is that he is the master craftsman that can and does refinish that which has been scuffed and mistreated. He is the one that in the book of Revelation stands over all of the created order and he says, behold, I make all things new. That would include your flawed, sinful heart and mine as we come to Jesus and we recognize, oh, we have done great harm to your intended purposes for our bodies and our communities. But as we confess that, he is faithful and just to wash us and to make us pure and clean. And so, it's a precious gift that's been entrusted to us as a people. The gift of our sexuality. We handle it with care. Quickly confessing where we have done harm and violence to God's intended purposes receiving his grace and his cleansing as he makes us fresh and new. And let's go on a journey as a community to pursue the vision that God has for the wholeness of our sexuality, both in our singleness and in our marriage. Let me pray for us.